Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear from a researcher who's been looking at how Colorado's extreme risk protection order law has been used in its first six months. There were basically three cases of pretty obvious misuse, and none of them were granted. Plus, we'll learn about the roots of political polarization from an expert in psychology and neuroscience. Those stories and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. In polling, on social media, and even within some family living rooms, the political divide seems to be deeper than ever. In the wake of the Capitol insurrection and with the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden on Wednesday, we want to understand why our politics are so polarized and what can be done about it. Leif Van Boven is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's been doing research on political polarization and our brains for nearly a decade, and he joins us now. Professor Van Boven, welcome to Colorado Edition. Great to be here. I want to get into what your research has found over the years, but we should start with a brief explanation of what we're talking about when we say polarization. There are a couple of ways that we think about polarization. So I think what most of us typically mean is among the general public, do people who are Democrats have different attitudes and beliefs and feelings than people who are Republicans? There's emerging evidence that the behavior of people in Congress, the behavior of, we call them political elites, can really influence the way ordinary people think about political polarization and the way that ordinary people think about other Democrats and other Republicans. So if we look at controversial issues, let's say climate policy, Democrats and Republicans have different attitudes about climate policy. Democrats tend to support a climate policy more than Republicans do in general. It varies a little bit from one policy to another, but that is generally the case. What we see repeatedly, though, is that most of us believe that the divide between Democrats and Republicans is much larger than it actually is. So in fact, we think it's about twice as big as it actually is on average. So part of what is happening and what is so kind of frustrating and worrying about what we see in the American public is that the divides on the issues themselves are actually not as great as we believe them to be. There's another aspect of polarization, the degree to which we like and trust and generally feel warmly toward other people. And there is increasing evidence that when we think about people on the other side, we don't like them, we don't trust them, we say that they make us feel cold rather than warm. So there's this increasing sense of what is known as affective polarization. Now, part of what we think is happening is that these kind of false narratives we have that we see the world really differently are feeding into this affective polarization. So even as we you know, are more similar than we might expect on many of 
the controversial issues that we care about, we actually don't like and don't trust the other side. And that makes us feel like we are in these very different groups. It sounds like it's almost less important what the substance of an issue or even a disagreement might be. What really matters more is what side the other person is on. That's right. What side the other person is on and what side we are on. And that goes by a number of names. Some people have called it political sectarianism. Other people Mm -hmm. call it political tribalism. But it, it certainly taps into this sense of it's either my group or your group, and we are in competition. And because we're in competition over things we care about deeply, I don't really like the other side. And that narrative gets fed back to us often by the communications we receive from political elites. What role does polarization play in how willing people are to believe disinformation? Thinking of, you know, the idea that COVID is a hoax or that masks don't work or that the U.S. Capitol insurrection was carried out by Antifa and not pro-Trump extremists. You know, it's not so much the role of polarization. It's the role of other people who are in groups that we trust and believe and care about. Many of the challenges we face in today's society are pretty ambiguous and complex. You know, most of us can't really be expected to understand all of the details about public health policy or economic policy or how we should behave. And so we look to other people who we trust. And so when we see other people in our group, starting with the political leaders and then coming all the way down to ordinary voters, people in our neighborhood, when we see them embracing certain attitudes and beliefs and behaviors, we largely follow suit, not just because we're mindlessly conforming, but because we're getting good information from them about what must be reasonable beliefs. Now, when political leaders and then other people start to spread mistruths, we are easily susceptible to believing those mistruths. Again, not because we're gullible, but just because we're trying to make sense of the world in the best way that we can and we're looking to people who we trust. And so when those people who we trust are telling falsehoods, we end up believing those falsehoods. Do you have recommendations for people who maybe have a big political gap within their family who want to close it, but you you don't want to abandon your own beliefs to do that? A really important starting point is to identify shared values, to recognize that some of these challenges we confront We have shared concerns about them. We're worried about the economy. We're worried about public health. So let's start with that kind of shared concern. And then we can acknowledge that maybe we have different ideas about how to resolve those concerns. But ultimately, we have the same goal of making society and life better for our friends, family, the whole world. Joe Biden ran for president and won, espousing the idea of unity, of healing America and our political divisions. It seems like more partisan ideologues are are becoming more prominent all the time. Do you think it's possible for a problem like this to be fixed within a single, you know, four-year presidential term? It takes a while. I'm not sure that we can do it in four years, but we can move in the right direction. One really useful starting point is to recognize that the extremists, the angry ideologues, that represents a very small fraction of both sides. That is not the way the general Republican or the general Democrat really feels. Now, those loud voices can end up having undue impact if they're the only ones that are heard. That means it's really on us as citizens to reach out to the other side, to make our voices heard, to make it known that we want to be more united than divided. Lee Van Bowen is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It was great to be here. Colorado's extreme risk protection order law was framed by many as a mental health measure. That law, which took effect last January, allows a judge to prohibit someone from having guns if they appear to be a risk to themselves or others. 
KUNC's mental health reporter Lee Patterson is with us now to talk about how it's being used. Hey, Lee. Hey, Henry. Give us a little background on Colorado's so-called ERPO law. Yeah, sure. So it's a kind of law that's becoming increasingly more common. At least 17 states across the country have an ERPO-type law on its books. Here in Colorado, the law has been really controversial from the start, and that's mostly because it has to do with gun rights. Sheriffs and local elected officials have said that they're not going to enforce it. Some have been really worried about abuse. So this group of researchers with the Firearm Injury Prevention Initiative at the University of Colorado Anschutz have been analyzing data to figure out how the law is actually being used. And what have they found? Well, because there's a lag in gathering all of the associated court documents, researchers have at this point analyzed data from the first six months of last year. This is Dr. Emmy Betts. She heads up the team. Often within an individual, there's both threats to themselves and to other people. For example, there might be threats of domestic violence plus suicide that someone who's threatening to kill his wife and then kill himself, for example. Also threats against more public settings like schools and workplaces, she says. Now, this description does reflect what proponents of the bill had in mind about how it would be used, that it would hopefully be a suicide prevention tool and that it could also reduce other types of gun violence. What we're seeing is that they're Cases where I think people would agree, yeah, that sounds like a pretty bad situation and that person needs some help. Lee, are researchers finding that many of these individuals who are subjects of the protection orders are in some sort of mental health crisis? That's a tough question to answer. The petitioners who are asking for these ERPOs are not required to attach like an entire mental health history to this petition. So we don't necessarily know if someone had gone through a psychiatric evaluation or had been put on a mental health hold, for example. Now, of course, sometimes people do include some of that information in these petitions, but it's not required. It feels like it's a smaller number of cases that we're seeing that are like, obvious psychosis, delusions. I think more often there's depression, um, substance abuse, um, kind of those other settings. So I think it's really important to to separate that, that these are not um, all cases of obvious instability. She did say that if you use a really broad definition of mental health, if you include substance abuse, if you include, you know, someone who's just going through a really tough time, like a rough divorce, for example, that probably all ERPO cases relate to mental health in some way, which I thought was an interesting way to look at it. Now, prior to this becoming law, opponents of the policy said that there was a chance that it could be misused. Have researchers found any cases of misuse? Yes. In the first six months of last year, there were a couple of examples of misuse. There were basically three cases of pretty obvious misuse, and none of them were granted. In one case, and this case did get uh, some media attention at the time, a woman filed an ERPO in Larimer County to have the guns removed from a law enforcement officer who had shot and killed her son a couple years back. Now, that ERPO was denied because there's no relationship between the woman and the officer. And in order to file an ERPO, you have to be a family member, a household member, or a law enforcement officer. Now, some in the gun rights community pointed to this as an example of misuse and abuse. Rally for Our Rights, that's a gun rights group based in northern Colorado. They were one of them saying, hey, look, this is ERPO being abused. There have also been some cases where an ERPO was filed in the wrong jurisdiction or lacked the appropriate information. Now, those could be cases of misuse, but it's just not clear. 
So overall, these researchers say that they're just not seeing widespread inappropriate gun confiscation. And I think that's a really important message that this law isn't, we, we have no evidence that it's being abused in the way people were worried about it. Thanks, Lee. You're welcome. That was KUNC's Lee Patterson. We'll bring her back to discuss the full data set for how Colorado's ERPO law was used in 2020 once it's available later this year. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. It's fair to say that 2020 threw a lot of unexpected curveballs at Colorado's economy. One that we're going to look at a bit closer is a buying frenzy in the real estate market. As KUNC's Matt Bloom reports, the inventory of homes for sale is at a record low, and that's pushing already high prices in the state even higher. Over Zoom, Allie Wasserman is showing me the inside of her new townhouse in Aurora. I have dishes on my counter, so ignore that. (laughs) It also has two bedrooms and two bathrooms. And I have a big basement, so lots of storage, and it's it's pretty awesome. So awesome that she was willing to pay $365,000 for it. When Wasserman set out to buy her first home last spring, she had a budget of around $400,000 and really wanted a place in Denver. And that was my goal. And the more that I looked in Denver, the more I realized that was not a very attainable goal, at least at the time. There were barely any homes in her price point, or any price point for that matter. And the more that I looked in the areas that I was interested in being in, the more I was just like, kind of finding that I was let down by <laughs> by what was available. And so I eventually sort of expanded my search and, and ended up in Aurora instead. A lot of people looking to buy a home in Colorado have had the same experience over the past year. It takes a lot of energy knowing that when you have a buyer, it's going to be an uphill battle. Alfonso Rodriguez is a realtor in the Denver area. What we're seeing, he says, is a basic supply and demand issue with a few nuances thanks to the pandemic. One is that people were stuck in their homes for two or three months at a time. And in the industry, we're finding that when people are stuck in their homes, they're realizing that either one, they don't like their homes, two, that their home doesn't work for them. And interest rates are extremely low right now, which gives people more buying power. Rodriguez says the result has been an all-out bloodbath between buyers. Last year, on average, personally, I'd have to write between two or three offers um, to get a client under contract. Now I have clients who are writing 10 or 12 contracts or offers before they go into contract. And, you know, this time last year, we might be competing against five or six other buyers when we find a house that they want to offer on. Now we're competing against 20, 25, 35 buyers. um, And that's just after a weekend of being on the market. Because of that, prices are soaring. The median price for a single-family home in Colorado has jumped to $450,000. That's an almost 15% increase over this time last year. And so when you look all over the state, even our most remote counties are thriving because people are wanting to be remote. So they're finally moving to Salida and Telluride and um, Steamboat Springs and wherever you can imagine where people would rather work from. Because of that, Broomfield realtor Kelly Moy expects 2021 to be another record year of price appreciation, even if inventory increases. And then don't forget, we've got all these people in 2020 who wanted to move, like wanted to sell and couldn't, you know, just did not feel comfortable during COVID, thus the low inventory, who may say, you know, now we're ready to go. Like, let's bring it on. I have a little like patio area out back here. 
Back at her townhouse in Aurora, Allie Wasserman has a warning for other buyers. Be realistic before setting out to buy a home. Just really considering what what your standards and and desires are for for the place and then figuring out where you can compromise because unfortunately in this market I don't think anybody's going to find exactly what they're looking for in exactly the place they're looking for. Even if it wasn't what she expected, she's happy with what she has. Matt Bloom, KUNC. The nation celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day this year on Monday, January 18th. And while the federal holiday is an annual tradition across the country now, it wasn't always that way. It took several attempts to get King honored even here in Colorado, and the person responsible for making it happen is Wilma Webb. She served in Colorado's House of Representatives for six terms and is also the former First Lady of Denver. Her husband, Wellington Webb, was the city's mayor from 1991 to 2003. Last January, KUNC's Stephanie Daniel spoke to Webb about her work in Colorado politics and why she brought Martin Luther King Jr. Day to the state. Why did you feel it was important to have a day set aside to celebrate Dr. King? As most people know by now, Dr. King was one of the greatest Americans that we have ever had that has ever lived. And he was one of the most uh, unanimously loving and loved humanitarians across the world. And so what he was doing was all good for making America better. He actually changed the direction of our country, which was going in a poor direction, a bad direction, where we had segregation, uh, where we had uh, people that were unemployed and underemployed who couldn't get jobs because of discrimination. And he lived his life and he gave his life to make those corrections as best as he could. And I was particularly moved by the 1964 and the 1965 Civil Rights Acts. So one was for accommodations and for doing away with segregation and the other was for the right for everyone to have a right to vote. And so that was at the highlight of what he was doing. But further than that, when I was a young girl, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to Denver. He was the guest speaker at our church, New Hope Baptist Church, for me at that time. And then Mrs. Coretta Scott King also came here, and her first official speech to an audience, her first public speech, was done here in Denver, Colorado, at uh, New Hope Baptist Church. And I was the organist, and she was the guest speaker, and we were friends ever since then. And so my relationship with the King family goes really far back. And so I felt that it was my duty and my responsibility to try to do whatever I could in terms of their values, in terms of their principles, in terms of their humanitarian efforts. And so I thought the least that I could do was to have him recognized not only for what he did but for all of the contributions of particularly African-American people at that time but as you know he was a person who was for making everybody better. Talk a little bit about what it took to get the bill passed. The efforts began in 1968 when Dr. King was assassinated on April the 4th, 1968. And there were all kinds of tributes and resolutions giving him respect and honor. But there were very few efforts to make his birthday an official holiday. 
at the time, State Representative Wellington Webb was the first one to carry legislation in Colorado, and he attempted three times, and on the third time he did get it out of the House of Representatives, but it died in the Senate. And when I came in 1980, I carried bills in 1981, 82, 83, and 84. And each time it was really quite an ordeal in terms of educating the elected officials in terms of the negative thoughts about Dr. King, such as his being accused of being a communist, which he was not, in terms of people who were elected and promising to vote for it, and they did not vote for it, in terms of after it was adopted, At the time before it was adopted, I was a member of the Joint Budget Committee, which is the most powerful committee because it combines both the House and the Senate to write the state's budget. And the speaker at that time was not a supporter. He was an opponent of Dr. King's, and he would not reappoint me to that committee. And I had to go to court to be able to take my seat on the Joint Budget Committee. And so those were some of the things that happened, but I have to write a book to share everything. But the good thing is, is that we have this holiday. For our listeners, they may be hearing noises of geese and car sounds, and you and I are actually not in the studio. We're in City Park in Denver, and we are in front of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, and your name is on there, so talk a little bit about this memorial. We're very proud of this Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, Memorial Monument because of what it means, first of all, and then second of all, for whose shoulders he stood on and for his shoulders and their shoulders and the predecessor's shoulders that we all stand on today. And if you'll notice the tablets surrounding this sculpture, uh, they give the history of African Americans from the beginning of slavery on up until the assassination of Dr. King. And they also have his remarkable, untouched quotations that he used throughout his life to improve humankind. He was a humanitarian, and those are irrefutably wise, and and they still stand today. On Martin Luther King Jr. Day, there is a maraid here in Denver. What is the maraid? In 1985, when we were meeting as the commission for the holiday, since we had the holiday, we said, what are we going to do with it? And so we were meeting to establish and create activities and also the legacy of Dr. King that would be reflective of him. And so uh, we created our six days of activities to include every community in Colorado. And we were talking about what should we do on Martin Luther King Day. And so I said, well, we have to have a march. We have to have a march. And then we took it a step further because march implies that you have a purpose that there is a remedy and the remedy is being denied and it's not being acknowledged even though it's right. And so we said, well, we have to celebrate the, cel- the celebration of 
the abolishment of slavery, all of the efforts of the civil rights movement, the march from Selma to Montgomery, all of the people who have fought and who have worked on uh, making it possible for all people to be able to vote. So we have to celebrate that those things have happened. So that's when I came up with the term Maraid and it got adopted. It's everywhere now, the Martin Maraid. And it is to always address the issues that need to be corrected and made right and always to celebrate where we've come from as a nation. You've created quite a legacy from your Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. bill. What do you think when you see all of that? I'm happy for what has happened and glad and grateful for what has happened. I still think, just like Dr. King said, he said, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. And I feel like we're still not there yet. We're not there yet. The dream hasn't been realized. We're not there yet, and I keep working for us to be there. And I think other people do. And I think they look to this for inspiration because Dr. King was, he was an humble person. He, he wasn't a wealthy person. He wasn't a highly elected official like a U.S. senator or a president or anything. He was one of the people. And so it gives people hope because everything that he did for people has made America better. He changed the direction of America. He did. Wilma Webb is a former Colorado state representative responsible for establishing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a holiday here in Colorado before it was celebrated nationally. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very kindly for having me. I really appreciate being here, and I'm grateful to all the people who have supported this holiday throughout the years. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear how Colorado's community college system will use new grant money to reassess and revamp police training programs. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our show is produced with help from Adam Reyes and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 